Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from Space Kraken to Giant Sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code IsaacArthur. Good afternoon and welcome to SFIA, we're going to be hosting today Fraser Kane of Universe Today, one of our sister channels, and let's just go ahead and get started. Good afternoon Fraser, how are you doing? Hey Isaac, doing great. What does SFIA stand for? Oh, Science and Futurism with Isaac Arthur. We ended up with oh, that okay. uh, title just because it was the one that got stuck on us, we couldn't think of one better, I'm afraid. So. <laughs> no, I, that's awesome. I suspect most of our audience is already very familiar with your show. We've collaborated before and you've been around for quite some time doing this, but uh, for those who aren't familiar with Universe Today as a publication, a channel, could you go ahead and tell us how that got started and what that's about? Uh, sure, yeah. I started Universe Today uh, as sort of a, as a side gig. I was working for as, as a web developer uh, back in the 90s, and in 1999, so we're almost 20 years now, I founded Universe Today as a way to sort of stay in touch with the space news that I had been a huge fan of. I, I read The Case for Mars by Bob Zubrin and Pale Blue Dot by Carl Sagan, and those two books, I was just like, I'm, I was I'd always been into space and I picked up those two books and they just got me completely riled up to do, you know, some kind of space related creative project. And so I started Universe Today as just a side project while I was doing my my regular job. And within a couple of months, I'm like, oh, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I want to learn to be a science journalist and report on space news forever. And and I was fortunately able to transition from the one job to being able to to do this work full time, and I haven't looked back since. So, um, yeah, li- literally closing in on twenty years now of reporting on all the various space news that's happening. I was surprised by that, but I've actually been tuning in or reading you a uh, Universe Day article since I'd say about twenty years ago. If there you go, maybe you eighteen. Must have just been like a child or something. <laughs> Oh, no, I've picked it up, I think, uh, either my late in my undergrad or early grad, it would have been early 2000s, though, so. And yeah. it's been, I say, usually it's one of the ones I recommend right along with uh, Paul Gilstall from Centauri Dream, so. Yes. If you're looking for good astronomy information in general, there's really no better place to get it. Um, in terms of astronomy, I mean, we've seen it evolve a lot over the years. You were just remarking about uh, Sagan and uh, Zubin, I was thinking, back when I first read that, you know, for Case of Lamar, was in the mid-90s. Uh, we hadn't discovered a single exoplanet yet. Yeah, and yeah. Think, Nineteen. I'm trying to think. 1995, Peg 51b was the first proper exoplanet, the hot Jupiter that was found. And so, when you think here we are, 25 years later, it's mind-bending. There are thousands of exoplanets. We have measured their atmospheres, found them in the habitable zones, planets around red dwarfs, and. Uh, sun-like stars, even planets around the closest star to the sun. Like, it's such a different world now. It's funny to think is that we've found, I think, t- uh, at least 10,000 of them now either as candidates or hard, uh, hard confirmations, and yeah, that's just barely scratching the surface. Uh, and we when got- you think about, like, TESS, TESS is going to find about 15,000 planets. Um, Gaia will potentially found, find tens of thousands of planets. 
and there's all kinds of other projects in the works. The European Space Agency has its CHEOPS mission, which is going to be like a, a companion to test to find even more worlds. So I wouldn't be surprised if we had this conversation 10 years from now, we would know of, of hundreds of thousands of planets. And yet we've probably got billions of them to potentially look for on interesting things yeah. on as we get down the road. It's yeah, interesting. Yeah, find. We've cataloged so many of these stars and galaxies out there, and yet most of these things, they, they don't ever get a name. We probably could never even give them all names without having a lot of repeats. But maybe the more important ones that we find atmospheres around and habitable zones, we're getting ready to do some launches on stuff like that. Um, what kind of things should we be looking for? I mean, we talk about techno on atmospheres of these planets, trying to hunt for them for SETI. What other sorts of things would we do with that? What would we be looking for on those planets? Well, I mean, in terms of techno-signatures or biosignatures, right? Like, like there's sort of two really big schools, schools of thought here, right? This idea of, of like, when James Webb launches, it's going to have the ability to measure the atmospheres of planets orbiting other stars and be able to look for, this is what the astronomers call biosignatures, like looking for some kind of signal that there is life there. You know, you come to planet Earth and you see the plants around and you, you see the oxygen in the atmosphere, you know that there is life. There's something that is out of balance that is, that is generating this atmosphere here on Earth. And so the quest is to come up with a biosignature that then astronomers can find on other star systems and then use these powerful telescopes like the James Webb to be able to locate them. It's actually a more complicated problem than I think people had, had expected um, previously that look, trying to figure out like an, like an unambiguous biosignature, something that if you said, oh, we see it, then that means there's life is actually really tough. Mm -hmm. And people have proposed things like oxygen and ozone and carbon dioxide and all kinds of different methane different chemicals and all of these there is a way that they could be naturally produced but I, but my guess is by the time james webb launches you know in the next thousand years or so <laughs> yeah. um, the astronomers will have come upon some set of you know indicators that says okay there is absolutely some form of life on this planet that is generating an atmosphere. So it's interesting to think that we are just a couple of years away now from having an instrument in space that can that can try to give us those sort of definitive answers. And even if if James Webb doesn't do it, there is you know, there are multiple telescopes following afterwards. There's a bunch of ground-based telescopes like the extremely large telescope. There's some space-based telescopes like Louvoir that will do an even more dramatic version of this. So I think that we are, you know, I would say we're within 10 to 20 years of having the tools in place to tell us if there is life orbiting other stars in our galactic backyard. And that's just like life. That's just like whatever, slime mold and trees and you know. trying to find something that with an actual techno signature is a lot trickier but i think yeah yeah and then at the same time i mean nasa is taking this idea of seti a lot more seriously in the last couple of years i mean for the longest time the whole idea of seti was was seen as ridiculous that nobody would would search for any kind of evidence of alien civilizations and yet of course it is easily the most important philosophical question that a human being can ask right are we alone in the universe we want to know uh 
I always, you know, I always provide this thought experiment. If I could give you an envelope and in that envelope was the answer is, you know, are, are there other alien civilizations in the, in the Milky Way? Would you want to open that envelope? Would you want to know the answer to that question? Right. Either way, as Arthur C. Clarke said, it's an, it's an interesting outcome. Oh, sure. So, the implications of what it's going to be like if there is no other life are in some ways just as staggering as finding that life nearby. I think scarier, right? The fact that if we do, it does turn out that there is no life, then then all the pressure's on us, mm-hmm. right? Like we can't mess it up, or at least the dolphins can't mess it up. And if the dolphins mess it up, then the then the octopuses can't mess it up. And if the octopuses aren't able to pull it off, then, you know, then maybe it's going to be the cockroaches. And then the sun will have expanded and destroyed all life, boiled away the oceans, and then we're out of chances. But but one of us has got to be able to pull this together to to spread life into the universe. If it is empty, and if it's not, then then we don't have to panic, right? We're like, we'll let the aliens figure that out, and maybe they'll invite us to their party. And of course, that is always one of the concerns on SETI, is if there are all these filters that prevent life from being too common, what if some of them are still ahead of us in time? Right, of course. Oh. Yeah, I mean, and that's, of course, that uh, that idea. You know, you find life on Mars. You find an unambiguous signal of an alien civilization coming from another star system, and then you're like, uh-oh, right? Sounds like the Great Filter is ahead of us now, because we, uh, you know, we just we can we know that that something happened to them that wiped them out, and whatever that thing is, it's going to wipe us out next. So the problem yeah. is you can never ask them after the event without going there to find their ruins. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We should, you know, hopefully we can figure it out. But in theory, you know, the whole key with the with the great filter, of course, is there's no way to avoid it. That it hits everyone, hundred percent. No matter how hard you try, no matter how well prepared you think you are, great filter comes for all of us. So um, NASA organized this this techno signatures workshop uh, a couple of months ago, I think back in September 2018, and brought together just some of the best minds in the industry. Jill Tarter, of course, who's one of the founders of the SETI Institute and really one of the main people behind. The search, you know, she was the subject of of uh, contact, right? Um, and uh, David Kipping, the ExoMoon guys, and uh, Jason Wright, one of the people who helped uh, uncover information about Tabby Star, and uh, you know, another forty or fifty uh, people who are who are tangentially working in this in this field, and they just sort of brought together all of their ideas. They gave each other a bunch of presentations and then produced this really wonderful report that is all the different ways that you could search for techno signatures out there in the universe and which are the ones that are going to be the most likely to, to provide some kind of result. And it's, it's quite amazing how some of these are, are, are well along. Like when you look at things like the square kilometer array that's being built in South Africa and Australia, it's going to be able to detect the leaked electromagnetic transmissions from other civilizations. Like it could detect us on earth, not a directed SETI blast, but it could actually detect just us watching television. So we are, uh, say a decade away from having a tool that can just, just sense the background transmissions of other civilizations. 
And that question comes up a lot of times is when we say we're looking for techno uh, You know, we'll talk about bio early with atmospheres, but for techno the big low-hanging fruit has always been looking for that radio signal. And then the other one uh, we usually do is a college of two civilizations. Uh, and we had yeah. that fun of, what was that, last year we did the uh, tips for engineering and culture of two yeah. civilizations. Yeah. <laughs> that was a great episode yeah. to do. Yeah, well, and this, and this idea, I mean, that if you – no matter how advanced a civilization is, they can't hide their waste heat. Mm. And so you, uh, a Dyson sphere would give off an unambiguous signal of infrared radiation in a very strange way that would be perceptible. But a card, you know, a Kardashev three civilization that had moved around all of the stars of their entire galaxy and enclosed them all in, in Dyson spheres would be even more obvious. obvious. So I think that we are, uh, when you think about, like the tools that are available for us to be able to search for some kind of evidence are actually pretty significant. And then it always comes back to the Fermi paradox where you're just like, where is everybody? I know one of the ones people always like to suggest on the channel, we discuss the Fermi paradox is could those voids or could dark matter or something like that all, you know, be a K2 or K3 civilization. And you know, that waste heat problem never really tracks for a lot of folks. And, of course, maybe someone finds some way to break the laws of thermodynamics down the road for a free lunch. Besides radio signals and uh, and waste heat, has anybody suggested any other good ways of finding one? I'd imagine Jason Wright might have put up megastructures around stalls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it was, it was funny. I just did an interview with Jason Wright, and he admitted that he was the one who put the idea of megastructures into everybody's brains. Um and he's un- unapologetic about it, too. No. Um, but um, yeah, no. I mean, I mean, obviously there is the just the direct transmissions, right? You're looking at, say, a, you know, a radio transmission or an optical transmission or some more exotic particle like a neutrino or something that they could use to try and communicate with us. But the other thing that we can always look for is transit. So you, you mentioned megastructures where, you, you know, we have these really sophisticated tools that are designed to watch planets passing in front of their stars. And they see this, this unambiguous signal that a planet is passing in front of the star, dimming the light from the star and then reappearing. And, and then the, the light reappears as the, as the planet uh, moves away. And it's, you can actually find this stuff with, a, with, your, with your own telescope. You know, you can confirm exoplanet discoveries with a fairly small telescope. There's some great tutorials on YouTube and, and online if you want to do that. But if you had something that was like the shape of a triangle or some other shape, some kind of clearly artificial shape, it would give a very different light curve than a nice round spherical planet. And so that's one of the other ways that they propose to be able to look for some kind of evidence. And then the other one, of course, is just the idea that there are historical artifacts here in our own solar system that the alien civilizations left here you know they sent their robotic factories to the solar system they they produced a bunch of monoliths and then spread them around on the moon and on earth and on europa and it's just a matter of time for us to find them and we just haven't mapped the worlds in the solar system to a level of resolution yet that we would notice these things if they were if they weren't a kilometer across in many cases. I mean, Mars has been pretty well mapped in the moon, but if you had something that was a kilometer across, it could still be hiding on Europa and we wouldn't even notice. That's a pretty good example of these, uh, but you might have a probe coming to the solar system, say, one that was looping around the star on a hyperbolic trajectory. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah. I will not yeah. mention the name of that asteroid because I always botch the definite uh, pronunciation of it. But Umuwa? what do you think of that? Oumuamua, yeah. yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, well, I mean, th- that idea, I mean, I mean, of course it's a rock, right? Of course it's a rock or of course it's a comet or it's, some, it's a smashed up comet or it's a smashed up rock or it's a rock or it's a comet or whatever it is. It's probably not natural. But, um, and in fact, like I said, there's some interesting research that just came out that, yeah, maybe it could be a, it as it crossed past the sun, got smashed up into a longer shape that, that is a debris that, uh, cloud that is rotating, which give it, gives it that more elongated shape. Right. So there's a lot of natural explanations for what Oumuamua could be. But just this idea that a, a rock can make the trip from from star to star so it doesn't seem super weird that a that some future civilizations can be able to develop the technology to be able to travel from from star to star you know we can we're smarter than a rock i think and so we can imagine some future pulling civilization pulling this off probably by using a rock well, I was thinking, I, many people wonder on things like this when we talk about, well, maybe it's a solo sail, what shape it is. And I was thinking back to New Year's when we were watching Ultima Fuel uh, uh, get a little bit bigger on the screen, going from one pixel to two pixels. Yeah. And folks will wonder, why don't you guys just take a look at it? Why, 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 why can't we see it better? And it's so hard to explain, you know, why, why can't we get a better photograph of these things? Yeah, well, I mean, and like Oumuamua is a, is a great example of this like it's coming in at a at such a fast velocity that it is on an escape trajectory back out of the solar system it is not here to stay and that velocity is theoretically possible for us to achieve with some of the fastest spacecraft that we have when you look at the delta 4 heavy that carried the parker solar probe to to the sun which is the hardest place to reach in the solar system uh or the falcon heavy that's in you know that has already launched you know if you if you put a teeny tiny probe on top of a falcon heavy you could probably catch up with with Oumuamua but it would take several years and every month that goes by it adds years to the to the time you actually meet up with it and if we but it's entirely possible that we can start constructing a probe today be done within two years say launch it on a falcon heavy or a or a Delta four heavy and catch up with Oumumu and say 10 to 15 years and take close up pictures and study it and analyze it. And cause it's still, it's going to be going through the solar system for the next 10,000 years still, even though it's going so fast. So it's always one of those questions of how big the solar system is. And uh, we were just talking a moment ago about New Horizons and Ultima Fuel, and people say, well, this one's leaving the solar system. And they say, where exactly is the edge of the solar system? All those small little dwarf planets out there we keep discovering on the edge of it seem to say there's more territory out there, not just empty space. So Yeah, I guess you have to define edge, right? Like, is it the heliosphere? Is it the Kuiper Belt? Is it the Oort cloud? Because, I mean, the Oort cloud probably extends out about 50,000 astronomical units, like halfway between us and and Alpha Centauri. So the solar system is actually pretty big. And we have yet to even catalog a small portion of these, which is why it's so, uh, you know, we're lucky. We're very lucky to have found that asteroid as it came into our system. But we did that because it was getting so close to our own sun. Um, and and yet- close to the Earth. An awful lot of these these smaller asteroids, you know, that we really can't see that well. We can only see them as like one pixel. 
when people get surprised, they find out that these aren't always being discovered by these giant universities and observatories, but are often taking place in someone's backyard where the yeah. first discoveries happen. Yeah, I mean, space is big. And even just the amount of degrees in the sky across the entire sky that we can see, it's a huge area to resolve at a high level of, of detail. And so um, a lot of amateurs are able to really contribute to the field of astronomy by pointing their telescopes up into the sky and analyzing a tiny little spot in space night after night after night, looking at different areas. And a lot can discover asteroids and find supernovae and confirm. And, and you, can, you can find exoplanets for gravitational microlensing events. So it's quite amazing how, how kind of like how undiscovered space really is. We know where all the stars are. We know where all the permanent objects are. But to find the things that change, the really exciting stuff, that's a constant job, and a lot of people are able to participate in that. If folks were interested in getting started on trying to do that themselves, though, they presumably need to do something a little bit more upgrade than just going to the store and buying a, a telescope for a hobbyist, right? Well, it, de it depends on what you want to do. So, uh, like, some, like, finding exoplanets using uh, either if you, if you want to confirm transiting exoplanets, uh, you don't need that big of a telescope, an eight-inch, uh, six-inch telescope, an eight-inch telescope. You need to have a nice camera attached to your telescope so that you can do photometry. You can, you can measure the brightness of the stars that over time, so you can confirm that the planet is there. Um, with these gravitational microlensing events, same thing. Fairly small telescope. You just need to be able to ha have a nice camera attached to it that you can confirm a light curve that you're that you're seeing. I'd be um, remiss if I didn't. The, uh, the thought had come into my head recently because I was looking through the book that you recently wrote with uh, David Dickinson on uh, basically how to get used to doing astronomy at home. And one of my favorite bits in there is how to build your own $500 observatory in your backyard. And yeah. As I was flipping through it earlier today, let me pop that up there real quick so people can see it. There you go. And oh, twinsies. Oh, there we go. <laughs> and. Uh, it is surprising because, you know, I got my start doing astronomy uh, at a local observatory that we had gotten, which was fairly useless in Ohio, to be honest, but it was a very nice telescope. And uh, I was one stuck doing the uh, the shows for people on Friday nights and was open to the public. So my right. greatest fun was rotating the dome on people in the dark so they could suddenly jump and be scared. But it is just amazing how much just in the last, last 20 or 30 years it's gotten so much easier to do top quality astronomy. Is that yeah. kind of why you got into writing that book, or? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that that a lot of the material that was out there was sort of stuck in the past. That that a lot of the you know people see this astronomy as this sort of solo thing, where you go and you go to the store and you buy a telescope and you take it outside and you look through it and you see some stuff and then you put it in the closet and it collects dust and. And there are so many things that you can observe now and so many great tools and, and techniques that you, can, that you can use that we wanted to bring a lot of that modern thinking into, into what we did. Like even with all the photographs, all of the photographs in the book are done by amateurs. We reached out. I mean, you know, it's very easy to get access to Hubble Space Telescope pictures. I'm sure you use them for your videos. But 
not everybody has access to a Hubble Space Telescope in their backyard. And so we wanted to show what a regular person with skill and technique can pull off. And so we've got shots of all the planets. We've got shots of the International Space Station that that one astronomer was able to capture the sun, the moon, and then, of course, all these wonderful deep sky objects and long exposure stuff. And it and wanted to try and make this hobby so accessible and help people give people those first steps they need to take to be able to 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 get into this hobby seriously. And it's a I like astronomy i mean I, I love astronomy just you know i love looking through a telescope i'm always thrilled when i can see saturn or jupiter or the moon it's just it always blows your mind and i love to be there when you show it to another person and i'm sure you got that when you're working the observatory and you're like okay let's put it at saturn and then people are looking through and they're like no way that saturn really it is so much different to seeing them you know right through the lens the first time as opposed to you know we get so many great artistic renderings and photographs yeah. but there really is a big difference doing it in person. And I yeah. think we will tell people that there's a lot you can do with amateur astronomy and, you know, you could discover an exoplanet or an asteroid, but I think they sometimes assume that's a real lucky strike, whereas if you're actually doing this with a halfway decent amateur telescope, you are going to find one of these things. It's not a, a lot oh, yeah. of odds chance. It's a, it's practically yeah. a guarantee. Yeah, build up your skills, uh, learn the techniques, and then just put in the time and be out there on a regular basis, and you will find them. Um, there's a supernova hunter out of uh, out of Australia who a has lot of found them. hundreds of supernovae. He just he knows his galaxies. He takes his telescope out every night, and he just keeps scanning all of these galaxies that he knows, waiting to see one pop of the supernova. And it's just a matter of time. Um, we we discovered a supernova in one of our virtual star parties by accident. Uh, we didn't realize that we had a supernova, and our and our one of the people who was in the star party with us said, "Oh, that galaxy often has supernova in it. It doesn't have one right now." And then, of course, what do you know? It did. And then the next morning, it was announced that the supernova had been discovered, and we missed it. But it was in, we had a picture of the supernova, and we were able to provide to the scientists our images of it. But it's kind of amazing to think that, that yeah, they, that regular people, just with some time and patience and skill, can, can contribute to the science and be a part of this. Of course, usually we mean visual telescopes as opposed to ones in different frequencies. But do you ever yeah. see that becoming a big amateur area, infrared or radio telescopes? Well, I mean, in, it's tough. Like a radio telescope is a different creature. And the problem for most, like if you build a radio, you can absolutely build a radio telescope. You can turn a a radio, like an old satellite dish into a radio telescope. But it's a very, um, I don't know, it's like when you do it, it has like a one pixel of resolution. And so you're pointing your telescope at some radio source and you get, yes, there is radio waves there. And then you turn a little to the side and you're like, no, there is not radio there. And you can kind of go like, oh, we're getting a radio frequency of this. Like you don't get those pretty pictures. Mm -hmm. And I think that for a lot of people to be able to look at the eyepiece, look at the pictures that are coming off the camera and go, oh, yeah, I see it is worth I think it. that definitely but, is a lot more the appeal, though. But I guess the, the, that uh, SETI crowdsourcing project, I guess that could be argued to kind of be radio telescopes. <laughs> yeah, well, you're crunching data, right? Yeah. Which is which is a much-needed assistance. So for the people who are running the SETI at home and the, and the BOINC project, mm -hmm. if you wonder if you're helping, you're totally helping. 
Mm -hmm. uh, it's way too much data. They pull out uh, terabytes and terabytes of data on a fairly short observing run, mm -hmm. and then they just they need people's help combing through all that data to search for anything they can find. Come to think of it, wasn't uh, Tabby Star? We were talking about uh, megastructures and Tabby Star a moment ago. Wasn't that how they grabbed that one as well? Uh, amateurs and picked up from the data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So th I think there, it was done through um, Galaxy Zoo, I think. And it's the situation where you've got amateurs scanning through tons and tons of photographs and, and data, the kinds of projects that computers are really bad at, and they're finding these weird things. And then they, they pass these along to the scientists. They're like, I found a weird thing. What is it? And then the scientists have a chance to, to look at it and, and try to categorize it. And Tabby Star was so weird that a lot of scientists jumped onto it and have been are continuing to puzzle it out even now. I guess that anomaly hunting is probably pretty much describes most science going back. I, I would say probably Galileo was a little surprised when he got zoomed in on Saturn and saw the yeah. weird little thing sticking off the side of it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's this funny. Uh, it's you know, was it was it Asimov who said, you know, the most interesting thing that you can hear a scientist say, or you know, is like that's funny, that's weird, right? Like that's what you wanted. That's when you know you're onto a real scientific discovery. When you, know, you don't you say have that moment where you look at it and say, "What was that? What's, <laughs> that can't what's be this? Right. Yeah, this is unexpected. Yeah, absolutely." But I guess we have, you know, we certainly have these projects that are deliberately looking for things. We are bemoaning the James Webb telescope never quite launching a little bit ago. What would you see after this next upcoming generation of telescopes? What would you see as the, the best area to concentrate to in terms of the, these bigger telescopes that we do as massive projects? Well, the, I mean, we are right around the corner from three gigantic telescopes that are under construction just on the on the ground. Well, four. Um the first one that's going to come online is the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope. And this is a telescope that's going to be scanning the night sky night after night after night very quickly. And it's the machine that's going to be doing things like finding those asteroids, those comets, those supernovae, and weird things that space does when we're not looking. And that's due for first light in just a couple of years now. So we're really just around the corner from that. And that's going to be down in Chile. There's going to be the Giant Magellan Telescope, which is going to be, I believe, a 30, 20, 28-meter telescope. I forget the exact size. Um, and then there's the 30-meter telescope, which is going to be built in, in Hawaii. And then the monstrous one of them all is going to be the extremely large telescope, which is the sequel to the very large telescope, which is the European Southern Observatory. And it's going to be 39 meters and it will have the resolution to image again, to directly image the atmospheres of planets orbiting other stars. That, that we will have on the ground a telescope capable of doing this kind of stuff that, that will match and exceed the power of the best space telescopes that we, that we have right now and, and into the foreseeable future. So I think just on the, but then in space, we've got a bunch of gigantic telescopes coming there. We've got W first which is going to be sort of like Hubble, but it's going to be going for, it's going to be a lot faster and a much wider field of view. And, and again, looking for things that are changing. Of course, James Webb, which will launch in the year 8,000. And then there's a bunch of next generation telescopes that are in, that are in the thought process right now 
best of these, the one that I really want to happen is LUVAR, the Large Ultraviolet Infrared Observatory, which is going to be a 15 to 18 meter space telescope, um, sort of at the very limit of what can be launched by a an SLS with a full block two upgrade. Or the other idea is to launch it in pieces and assemble it at some in some space station. And when you think like the biggest telescopes on Earth today, you know, maybe you've got like the what about an eleven meter telescope or ten point four meter telescope. I think that's what Subaru. Grand, yeah, the Grand um Carina uh the 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 one on the Canary Islands. And then you've got the very large telescope is four separate eight point four meter telescopes. And then I mentioned these these next generation ones that are coming. This is going to be of that same scale, but in space, and so it's going to be able to do things like it's just it'll it'll and it'll be this wide spectrum like Hubble. Like Hubble's this really special instrument because it does from ultraviolet through to infrared and through the vis- mm-hmm. visual spectrum, and the visible light. And so James Webb is is a completely different spectrum. It's looking at really cold objects. And if, when Hubble goes, we won't have a telescope, a space telescope that, that's in that same field. And that's what Louvoir is going to do is be there. And I, you know, I had a chance to chat with one of the researchers with Louvoir. And one of the things that he said is like, again, it will be able to image the atmospheres of planets going around other stars. And it will be able to look with such sensitivity to such a distance to tell us with about a 90% accuracy whether we're alone in the Milky Way. Like you just, you know, you don't see any life on all these planets and all these stars to this far of a, of a sphere around us. And then you go, man, eh, we're probably alone. Or, you know, how, how much life there is. You can measure it. So you think inside of 20 years we might have an answer to the Fermi Paradox? Or is it probably still a little bit too much? I think, yeah, yeah, I think so. I think we've got enough... We've got enough interesting things going on. When you think of what's happening here in the solar system with the exploration of Mars and the potential missions going to Europa and Enceladus, Titan, all these places that where you would expect to find life. If there is life in the solar system, these are the places you'll find it. And then you've got the, the, all the work that's being done on SETI, searching for technosignatures from radio to laser to transits to infrared looking for type three civilizations etc etc and then you've got the the work in infrared and optical analyzing looking for biosignatures that is like a full court press that they are they are trying to find evidence of life across every method that's available to them and i think that yeah i think we will have an answer i mean obviously you can never you know, you can't prove a negative, right? But at a certain point, you can say, we've scoured the solar system and we found nothing. We've scoured our local sphere of the Milky Way and we found nothing. We've analyzed to our satisfaction every single galaxy that we can get our eyes on and we haven't seen any evidence that that there's a type 3 civilization out there. We have scanned the Milky Way and we don't see any Dyson spheres. We are looking for transiting megastructures and we haven't found anything. I think at that point, the the harsh reality that we are alone in the Milky Way would just become more and more of a of a central idea. And then as as we talked about in the beginning, then the responsibility is on us to to take care of this planet 
and to make sure that we get our shot to help spread life out into the universe. I guess I'll ask for we, we on that front, people always say the moon or Mars or maybe Venus first. Yeah. Fraser Kane, which one would you go for first? Unlimited Neither. budget. None. None of those. None of the above. Um, I, I always say that gravity wells are for suckers. And so, you know, if you if you go to all that energy to get out of a gravity well, don't go into another gravity well, right? They're just they're traps. So I think the 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 best thing that we'll be able to do is to learn to live in space itself. Like I think we will absolutely go and set foot on the moon and kick a couple of rocks around and, and see what we can find. We will absolutely do some exploration on Mars and probably in Venus as well. But I think the heavy lifting of space exploration is going to be the asteroids that we're going to go. We're going to drill into them. We're going to build habitats. We're going to spin them up. We're going to use the resources of because their their gravity wells are so low. They're really easy to shift resources around from from world to world. And I actually really think that that when we get really excited about just the kinds of launch platforms that are coming around right now. We think about the Falcon heavies and we think about the, 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 the super heavy and the starship, uh, which I'm still trying to wrap my head around saying um, this is, this comes from this mindset that we're going to want to launch a bunch of stuff from earth. But the reality is of course, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years from now, we will have the infrastructure in space to harvest the resources that we need to make whatever we want in space. There will be no need to launch anything from Earth. Like the only reason you'll have tiny rockets that will launch just us, just the meat into space. And then you'll go up to the space station and then you're gonna, and then the, the, the robots will be arriving with the 3D printed space station trusses and stuff that have come from mining the asteroids. Like I really think that we're in this tiny phase of our space exploration efforts where we think that it's important to – that we're going to need to launch a lot of stuff from Earth. Eventually we won't. We'll need to launch anything from Earth apart from us on our tourist flights. So no, I wouldn't go to any of them. I wouldn't – I don't think any of them are, are – long-term viable places uh you know venus is the worst right obviously and you know what does it have going for it it has earth gravity and obviously if you fly around in your floating cloud city then you get to have earth temperature and earth pressure but you also still have to breathe um you're gonna need to float around a sea of acid and <laughs> It rains sulfuric acid and so on, right? So it's not great, and there's no place to stand. Mars is dry and cold and almost airless, and the radiation is intense. And um, so, and we don't know what low gravity is going to do to the human body over the long time and over multiple generations. We don't. You know, it could be a uh, a crime against humanity to let people give birth on the moon or Mars and the moon could be even worse uh, with even less resources and even less gravity and, and even harsher radiation that's coming to it from space. So I think all of them are, are poor compared to us being able to take an asteroid, spin it up, live inside, get the kind of gravity that you want, have the protection from radiation, have access to resources and the Delta V's that you need to move stuff around the solar system is, is fairly low. So that's, you know, 
none of none of the above let's let's just go to space itself i like the comparison there with uh the, you know going from one, basically one bad relation to another when you're leaving the gravity well and just jumping into another one yeah but... don't go don't go to another game you did it you made it you escaped a gravity well stay out don't of go back to, <laughs> don't go back to another gravity well planetary counseling so of course the option there is you start harvesting all those asteroids up to build yourself a k2 or dyson sphere civilization one of the many great episodes on Universe Today, of course, being that collaboration we did discussing Cover Show 2 yeah. Civilizations. And, of course, the other one we had on Colonizing the Solar System quite some time back. So, if you haven't already checked out Fraser Kane's channel on Universe Today, or the publication Universe Today, or the book, there are going to be links for them below in the video description. And, of course, he was good enough to join us on this channel, but on his channel he regularly interviews some of the top minds of our profession, so... Make sure to check them out, and uh, we are glad to have had you here today, and we will see you on Thursday. Anytime, anytime you want to do anything, Isaac, you let me know. I'm on board. Thanks for having me.